This is HPR episode 2509 entitled Audiobook Club 16 Matcha Rules and is part of the series HPR Audiobook Club. It is hosted by HPR Audiobook Club and is about 120 minutes long and carries an explicit flag. The summary is The HPR Audiobook Club reviews Matcha Rules by Mary Holland. This episode of HPR is brought to you by archive.org. Support universal access to all knowledge by heading over to archive.org forward slash donate. Welcome to another episode of the Hacker Public Radio Audio Book Club. Uh, I'm one of your panelists. I'm Pokey, and with me on the show tonight, we got 5150. Howdy, folks. We've got Taj. What's good, everybody? And we've got X1101. What's up? Hey, guys. So for any of those who may be new to the show or unfamiliar with how it works, we, uh, we each listen to the same audio book over the course of a month. Um, it's got to be a, an audiobook that's freely available to the public so that anyone who wishes can participate in the audiobook club. Uh, we come on here, we use free software, free with a capital F, but usually you can get that free of charge as well so that there's also no barrier to entry there for people to participate. We discuss the book in very general manner without doing any kind of spoilers for a little while. And then we have a break in the middle of the show where we do a beverage review. And then after our beverage review break, we will spoil the book. So if you if you like the show and haven't heard the book yet, you know, feel free to, to call it quits at or after the beverage review if you don't want the book spoiled, if you plan on listening to it. I think that's all the high points. Did I miss anything, guys? No, that sounds about right. That's the spiel. All right. So that said, what you guys think of this one? Well, didn't you tell, tell the audience what the book was first, Pope? Oh, well, you could do that if you remember. Yeah, just a second. So I don't get it wrong. Let me go back to the page. Oh, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I was only kidding. I was still looking at the, still had the Belkin FM transmitter open. Our book this week was Matcher Rules by Holland, and we downloaded it from audiobooks.com. It's, there's 20 different episodes by the downloads. Now, of course, like, like most books, it doesn't match the chapters. There's more chapters than there are audio fragments. And it's about, of course, in, in the far future where other worlds beyond Earth have been colonized. In fact, I get they never say it outright. I get the impression that old Earth, as they call it, has either been abandoned or it's been, you know, outshadowed by other densely settled worlds. But this is the Novi colony, and it's a it's a 
about 150 years into since the settlement of this colony, and they're still dealing with things like population control. So everybody can have a uh, adequate standard of living without without putting too too much pressure on the agriculture that they're able to do at home because they talk about the economics about if you st- if you start having to import basic foodstuffs from space then everything gets non-viable real quick and people start to starve so and they've sort of up their own little unique society on novi everybody wants to take it from there Sure. So I will say, because you clipped right when you said it, that the book was by Mary Holland, and I, I feel it's important to uh, give the author credit for the book. Yeah, that's that's pretty good. I mean, their society is uh, is based on these affinity groups that this mysterious uh, matcher puts everybody in, and and. You know, without spoiling anything for all intents and purposes, we can just say that it's a, a mysterious rock that communicates with one single person who they call the solo, who's not in any affinity with anybody. And they put all these people in their affinity groups, and uh, that kind of keeps fighting and arguments to a minimum. So the place is, is pretty peaceful, and it, it goes on from there. So, yeah, I think that's about all I can think to say without spoiling it as far as the plot goes. The setting, yeah, it seems seems to be a, a pretty pastoral planet. They do have some city centers, but most of it does seem to be based on agriculture. Uh, they mentioned that their major exports are wine and coffee, and frankly, who needs anything else? Who needs any imports if you got that? But uh, yeah, I thought audio quality was decent. It wasn't the best ever, but it wasn't intolerable. The reading was pretty good. Uh, you could tell that she's not a professional, but she by no means did a bad job with it. It was an enjoyable story. It wasn't for me like it wasn't my kind of story. There was just there was too much in it that kept taking me out of the story, but I was still hooked to it. It was still you know, a, a quote unquote page turner, if we can still call an audiobook a page turner. I will say it was that because I, I did want to know where the story went, even though I wasn't really invested in the characters. Well, I will say about the reading, uh, Ms. Holland un, or Mrs. Holland, un, unlike a lot of the authors try to do, she really made no effort to give each character a different voice like she was reading a play. It was pretty much like story time at the library if she picked a book off the shelf, which is, you know, just fine. Not not everybody has this uh, theatrical talent to create a different voice for all their, all their characters. Yeah, and I wasn't really even considering that. I, I, I mean, I could take that either way. I don't mind if people try to do voices, and I don't mind if they don't. You know, either one is fine with me. And expand a little on affinities, and this is this is kind of part of the process of the book. You don't learn everything about everything up front, but this is a spoiler. If their society, when when you go to these affinities, you, when you go to the manager and you learn her your affinity is about that, about when you become an adult, eighteen or nineteen, twenty. There, you are put in a group of either just two people or three people or four people or five people and they sort sort of act as a uh, as a 
is a communal orga- uh, organization. I mean, the, the children are raised in common, but just because there's five people in the uh, in in the affinity, it doesn't mean everybody's having a big orgy with everybody. Uh, as as you progress through the book, it it seems it's more common. You know, if you uh, that in, in within these affinities for religions, people will actually perhaps a monogamous partner after a few uh, after a time of experimentation. Though it did seem that uh, when you it was common that if you had an affinity that had an odd number of people, that one person in there might have been by. Yeah, or was satisfied being the odd person out. Todd, X1001, we haven't heard from you guys yet. Sorry to be hogging the microphone. No, I'm just enjoying listening because you're hitting all the points I would be hitting. All I can say is I really enjoyed it. Yeah, this one was was more up your alley than mine, huh? Oh, I found that I kind of have a low barrier to being entertained. So... (laughs) I have to really not like something to not get into it, so that's not really a good judge of it. Okay. Taj? I will say I was consistently surprised by how much I liked it. When we kind of went through the synopsis last time, uh, when uh, Michael was telling us about it, I was like, meh, maybe. And then I started listening to it, and I was like, meh, maybe. And then it just consistently it kept up in its game a little bit and it kept me interested in it. And to, by the end of it, I really, really liked it. I think it's a good story. There are parts that are really predictable, but I still liked it a lot. I will say it's a little slow to start, but well worth it. I agree. It took a, for me, it took a few chapters to grow on me. And, you know, I said, well, you know, this, this first few chapters said, well, this isn't my cup of tea, but I'll listen to it as my duty to the, to the podcast because some people have different tastes than others. But, you know, by halfway through, I was interested in uh, knowing how it came out. Now, uh, we should add to the affinities. There is a, uh, a large minority of people on this planet uh, that are known as retros, and they're people who believe in only monogamous relationships. It's not really... Well, mi- only on the surface do they believe in monogamy. They just didn't like the match, or they they felt that it was controlling people. And there, I don't think it's ruining the plot to bring them up, so it's fair. But yeah, they they thought it was uh, an alien or an alien entity or something that was controlling the folks. But yeah, you you learn they're not strictly about monotony, and, and um, they just they just kind of wear that that mask, so to speak. Pokey, I think you just made a pretty big uh, uh, Freudian slip. You said you said they're not strictly about monotony. <laughs> uh oh, I might have. Then. No, I didn't think the book was monotonous. That was not Freudian. Uh, the point I was going to make is that I don't think they're so much focused on the monogamy, though. That is one of the points they make as they see the matcher as taking away fr- free will, and yeah. that's the that's the thing they're concerned with. Yeah, they they use they kind of hid behind monogamy. That was one of their tenets, it seemed early on. But they're, you know, they were pretty hypocritical. And really, you know, uh, they do have a point. I mean, what what kind of bigger decision are you going to make in your in your life on who you're expected to spend the entirety of the rest of it with? But uh, you know, as, as 
kept pointing out, you know, just because you have freedom of choice doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have a good outcome. I agree with you there, and I will go so far as to say that that's why the book felt so slow to get started for me, is because for at least the first, I don't know, maybe six chapters, I was on... The I was on the retro side. I thought they were right in this. You know, everything about the the matcher sounded wrong to me. And, you know, right down to them wearing armbands. Like, we've seen how armbands work, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I thought it was cut. You know, it, it was kind of a little strange. I mean, you, you had these uh, affinity guilds where you, you group together not necessarily politically but look economically i mean all the all the quints hung together and had a guild to care of their welfare if uh, general or somebody was done on their luck and you know and all the triads people the group of three had their guild and somehow it wasn't terribly well explained i think they they may have talked about how the various uh affinity groups then that also the partially determines the type of work you would want to do as well. But it's never really explained why you people were grouped together by the num by the number of people they lived with. So it, you know it and but this this book was very, very political because the political structure, you know, is democracy that had equivalent to you know a city government and uh, state or territorial government, and then each territory, each territory, you know, would elect one representative. And there were twelve territories. So you, had, you had a twelve-member ruling council, council of elders, and uh, and also, does, any, does anybody else think Elder Barry was it uh, meant to be Oak from the beginning? Was it meant to be what? Well, they didn't. They, they didn't refer to him this way. But halfway through the book, she, Mac Perry, every time she referred to him, she called him Elder Barry. You know, I never put that together until just now. Never <laughs> caught on. And neither did I. That's awesome. Now, I just want to point out one thing you said there, fifty. That's was a a big point of contention. You said it's a democracy, but it was a representative democracy, not a straight democracy. And the the, the difference in how those function is kind of critical to the politics in this book yeah yeah you're right all right because from you know one of the antagonists is the is the elder from district one max berry and uh you know he, he he's your old style style dirty you know uh smoke-filled room type politician you know he's he's working out deals politically that are you know to 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 serve his own interests and not the interests of uh, his constituents. And, well, one of the things they've done is originally the matcher would pick the solo from a group of people when when the old solo died. You you know, if you picked as a solo, you're solo till you die. But they keep picking old people. Part of that is because at, as a solo, you're supposed to, you're, you're no longer part of an affinity group. So they're picking people usually who, you know, everybody in their affinity group has passed on, which means they're of a certain age themselves. So they don't last more than three or four years. But how, how they, how they, how they've been rigging the vote, uh, the uh, elder council for the past you know, several decades has been they they only send one person to the matcher at a time to be solo. So they're actually picking the solo rather than the uh, the matcher, the alien device 
uh, picking the solo for them. And in doing this, uh, in the early in the book, they the old solo dies, and they have to they have to pick a new one. Max Berry picks one that is just completely in his pocket, and has agreed to do things like actually put the pe- put people together in affinity groups other other than uh, what the match would choose. So he got a mer- they have him send it. At one point in the book, they send him in with a memorized list to uh, make all those choosings and then let the matcher choose uh, everybody else. So, you know, he's, he's, uh, uh, Max Berry, he's a dirty politician and he's, he's not, not above uh, actually uh, have somebody killed, which is, this is this part of the book. I mean, uh, getting close to spoilers here, 50. Okay. Well, that was fairly early in the book. Oh, don't worry. We're going to get back to him when we get to the spoiler part for sure. You guys know who uh, Billy Bulger was? Do you guys remember him? Can't the, say that I do. Is that the gangster dude in Boston? It was the gangster dude in Boston's brother. The gangster dude was Whitey Bulger. Billy was the corrupt politician who protected Whitey for so long and and just ran Boston kind of into the ground <laughs> with with you know people that he controlled and he had put in place. But he 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 made me think of uh, Billy Bulger. Wait, there's a difference between gangsters and politicians? Oh, no, he didn't. It's it's subtle. He, you got to look close. Okay, the protagonist in our story, and it'll be a spoiler to, to uh, say too early why they become important to the story, but uh, the main protagonist is Stella Sim, and she has a twin sister, Amber, and uh, two fathers and a mother. So the story kind of story kind of revolves in the beginning around around this family, and both sisters are, you know, prepare, preparing. Well, I guess in, in time and space, from, from the time the book begins, it's about six months. They're they're pretend, you know, uh, preparing to go to the matcher and find out their affinities and and uh, go off in the world. And the uh, other protagonist is. Uh, is Jersey? He's a captain in the was it this Star Scouts, and it's a, it's it's a uh, is a branch of the Galactic military. And it, they say early in the book that you know they don't the the galaxy does not have and and this is a galaxy that hasn't they haven't found aliens you know it's all all human but there, there is a standing army but it's apparently not a very big one and they just really don't have the uh uh the werewolf to really enforce you know rules on individual planets so they do economically i mean if you play nice and you don't you you have a representative democracy for a government then you can eventually apply for different levels of membership it's not the commonwealth it's something close to that but until until you you know until you finally get full membership and they they kind of keep them under control well if you're not a full member then you have import and export tariffs and if you're really at, if you're really not playing nice you get a lot get a lot higher tariffs and really this is a a future where there's most places there's not much crime at all but novi has been identified as an anomaly a lot less crime or you know at at least statistically uh, that they've they have at least a little bit less crime than everybody else and 
they dispatched. Well, Jersey's a guy who had been caught by a terrorist dictator uh, in his previous assignment and had been tortured. Uh, you find that first thing in the book. And really, his his bosses are wanting to uh, find an excuse to uh, cashier him out. Of the, well, I shouldn't cashier him. Get, get him to take a medical des- discharge and retire. And at the beginning of the book, all he wants to do is stay in the military. So he takes this not very prestigious assignment that they give him to go to this peaceful colony and find out for him why it's so peaceful. So he's not... He doesn't necessarily go undercover, but he's not advertising to everybody what his mission is. I'm realizing that I found the setup of the story, the first few chapters where all that was laid out to be more interesting than the plot itself. Well, I think we're going to have real trouble in, you know, identifying where is the, where is the part where the spoiler starts. So, like I said, a part of the story is about well, part part of it is telling his backstory, and so he's still in traveling space from the story starts. And um, but uh, he he gets there, you know, a couple months before the matching, and finds the previous guy who had had his, his on world contact. His guy had also been a star scout, and had pretty much gone native and gone to retire there and go. Well, actually, I guess he had to stand after that. But when he when he uh, w- when he retired from the military, he went back to Novi and went through the matching and has pretty much gone on native as far as uh, uh, Jersey can tell. So he's not he's not sure how how she can rely on him. But uh, he, he he's the first person to really answer a lot of Jersey's questions and and the audience's questions, as is often the. Uh, um, a vehicle used by science fiction. You, you always have science fiction. You almost almost always have have the other, the outsider, so that in the story, so by you know somebody explaining to him how this society works, and the the uh, the listener or the reader well learns. Yeah, I found that fairly common device fairly well used here. Like I said earlier, you you go through. The first few chapters, you really don't know exactly what is the deal with these affinities and what they mean, and uh, etc. So it's as a lot of is as Jersey learns and as uh, you know, just conversations people have people have in the book. Then about a third of the way through, you've got a pretty good idea uh, how this society is set up. It seems to me like the author, you know, tried to keep most of what was really going on in mystery until, you know, towards the end and she saved it up for the big reveal, which I don't want to get into just yet, of course, because we're not in the spoiler section. But if she was trying to make it a mystery, I don't think that worked. This didn't feel like a mystery to me. Did it to you guys? I kind of trying to do this without spoiling it. I think the ending was telegraphed pretty early. I kind of found myself thinking once I knew what the end game was going to be. I was like, I bet I bet this is what's going to happen. And it turned out I was right. It was still satisfying. I wasn't like, oh, shucks, I already knew. So it wasn't like a mystery in that fact. If you guess the mystery, you're kind of either disappointed or, you know, just have a really big ego and think you're awesome. So, I mean, it's not, it wasn't that. It was more, oh, of course this happens. It, it, most of the time when in those cases where what's going to happen is fairly plain, 
it's the how and the why that is the meat of the story. Yeah, and I think that part was done well, or at least it was interesting. I I was interested in how it was going to play out because I had bought into the whole idea of that culture, so that kept me interested in it. I guess one of the other conflicts, uh, more of a minor conflict, and I don't know if given the impression that everybody on the Elder Council is necessarily a crook. They certainly all have their own interests. And the main rivalry within the council is between uh, Elder Barry and, and what her name, the leader of the other faction. Yeah, I didn't think that the author went real deep with that relationship, not as deep as she could have. That's getting into a spoiler. I don't want to get into. How about how about we have a drink? Let's do some a drink. What do you guys think? Ready for that? I second this. Yeah, I think we're going to have difficulty uh, much farther without getting into spoilers. I will go get my beer. Okay. Well, I've got mine sitting beside me, so I'll go ahead and start. Oh, here last fall, I attended a, a party, and a friend of his friend of his, you know, did a little home distilling, and you know, uh, his friends in in, uh, in uh, canning jars and all that, you know, and it. it had wonderful flavor, uh, you know. I tried tried some of the root beer and some of the peach, and you know, you know, he had all kinds of flavors. And you know, for for stuff that didn't come through the government store, I mean, this is the smoothest alcohol I've ever drank. I mean, the root beer is just like drinking a root beer, except you could tell, you know, you 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 have a whole lot of this. You're gonna you're gonna wind up sitting right on your tailbone. So I've tried. And some of the similar stuff has been showing up the last year in uh, in liquor stores, and a lot of it's flavored with various things. I had some peach the other day. It was not nearly so smooth as uh, what I'd had that was homemade. So I knew we were going to do this tonight, so I went by. This is a different brand. This is Junior Johnson's Midnight Moonshine, or Midnight Moon. It's got on the label. It's got a picture of a like a forty Ford coupe. I was, I was just going to ask if that was Junior Johnson, the race car driver, and yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I, ex- I expect they've probably licensed his name, and uh, you know, it looks it comes in about three flavors. One of one of them's just the moonshine, and there's two other flavors, and they've infused fruits. I don't know if they put syrup or anything like that in there as well. But if you look in the bottom of this bottle, I got the strawberry version. There's just strawberries sunk in the bottom of the bottle, or the bottom of the jar, rather. If you see one of these, it's going to be in a jar. And the other, the other flavored one has cherries instead of strawberries. And actually, I've waited till just now to try this. Uh, but I did get the lid loose to make sure I wouldn't have any trouble earlier. And this is, this just has the most wonderful strawberry smell. So I'll pour some in a glass. Surprising, not deep red like I expected. It's uh, you know sort of a very light pink, and so we'll actually try some of it. It's not bad, not as good as the homemade stuff I had. I had, but it's uh, you know smoother than the brand I had the other day. 
all these seem to run about similar price. I think $22 for 750 milliliter. So that's, that's a little pricey, but it's nothing like a single malt, malt scotch. So if you want something that goes down pretty good, tastes pretty good, I, uh, I, I recommend you try this Junior Johnson. Cool, cool. Don't forget to put your um, a link to that and maybe a brief description in the show notes 50 on the Etherpad. Oh, thanks for reminding me, yeah. Yeah, that sounds good. I had some uh, moonshine-type liquor. They're becoming popular in the last couple of years. My buddy had some a couple of years ago, and it was really good, I thought, when it was right out of the bottle. But after it sat for a couple of months, it got bad. It was not even drinkable. It is, it's a little hard to pour without spills a little bit. At least the bottle's full. Oh, yeah, that with the mason jar, that is kind of ridiculous. That's one thing. This, this other brand I tried, uh, I think it's Old American or something like that, but it, it had mason jar lid, but then it had a stop in the center of it. Not a bad idea if you're going to serve your liquor in a mason jar. I think, I think the idea is uh, they think you're going to drink right out of the jar. Yep, and if I was a true Southerner, like you've accused me of, I'm sure I would do that, but I'm using a glass. Oh, I did I did mean to mention, if you guys, now that I temporarily have cable, every once in a while, like, I come across one of these uh, real moonshiner shows, which still I don't know how they get away with. Yeah, uh, we're going to film you breaking the law and put that on the air, so I don't know how that works. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's only a breaking the law show I'm selling it. But, and, you know, these guys are out in the woods with rifles and all that, drunk off their tail while they're making it sometimes. Last episode I saw, they were talking about, oh, we're, you know, we've all, all this fake moonshine on the market. You know, our friend here, he's, he's got a, he's got a production license. Now, how does a known moonshiner get a production license? But be that as it may, and, you know, and he's going in the production, and it's going to blow these things off the market. Yeah, when I see those shows, I, usually suspect that it's not uh not nearly as illegal as they talk it up to be you know right because these guys out here you know have high-powered rifles and shotguns oh you know we better not see the sheriff well you know you think the film crew is going to stand there and film shooting at cops i don't think so <laughs> okay who else has a libation i do i have a lovely harpoon ipa which is a new england style ipa I see Harpoon a lot. Yeah, so do I. I don't know if I've had it before this six-pack, but I really like it. Uh, it pours very very light, which is unusual for most of the stuff that I drink. No head, very little lacing. I think the ones I have are too cold because I'm not getting a lot of the, the hoppy, the citrus, and the, the bite to it. So I'll have to let it sit a little bit and get a little less cold because i would i had it in the uh, the free refrigerator which is outside ah free for free free i don't know there's got to be a pun for that what do you mean by uh lacing what you didn't you didn't sprinkle pcp in it this time no um as i as i drink it there's nothing there's no head or foam left on the glass it's pretty clean oh okay neat all right i didn't know that that was the thing yeah, and it's usually a pretty good indicator uh, of the amount of alcohol in the beer. The the higher alcohol percentage, the less lacing you'll have. Oh, it's just the opposite with wine. With wine, when you swirl it around, if it clings to the side of the glass, that means it's got more sugar and alcohol in it. 
Well, as it happens, I was uh, drinking new uh, before I opened this. I was drinking New Belgium Slow Ride Session IPA, and by session it means it's it's uh, low enough in alcohol that you can you can drink a bunch of them uh, with without falling off your bar stool. So four point chip. Yeah, I was going to say, well, it's four point five percent, so that's not that's that's neither really low or really high either way. That's uh, that's fairly typical in the high fours, low fives is kind of where the session stuff tends to be. And like I said, I I prefer high, uh, a uh, an IPA. I, I mean, I'm not that big on hoppy beers, but when I do, I like one that has other flavors in it. And really, I don't. It's not it's not horribly hoppy. It's not one of those my hops can beat up your hops beers, but there really isn't much there except the hops. And I'm looking at a definition online of session IP. It says it should be a little more, it should be more balanced if it's going to call itself a session. This is a really good thirst quenching beer. This is what we call a lawnmower beer, I would say. 50, if you're going to do two beers, you got to do it twice the show notes. Well, actually, I plan to put one of my one of my beers, but yeah. Ken's out there saying, no, turn each one into a different episode. The session one that I've had that's been the best has been Founders. They have an all-day IPA that's just fantastic. Yeah, you guys go again with your IPAs. I, I, I don't know. I feel alienated, not by you, but just by myself, that I don't like IPAs. I don't like super hoppy beers. I wish I did because there's, you know, there's there's four IPAs to every one beer that isn't an IPA. You know, in in every uh, grocer's you know refrigerator that I see. I think you and I need to trade places because at this point I have a hard time finding an IPA that's not one of the couple mainstream ones or one I haven't had a dozen times before. Oh man, we've got a pretty good selection of IPAs. Yeah, I, I you know, I prefer more multi beer myself most of the time. When I see something I haven't had, I always try it. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. I like malty or creamy or you know chewy beers more than more than the hoppy beers. I don't you know, like too sweet, which is hard to find a beer that's real malty without being real sweet. You know, two years ago, I would have agreed with you completely. I thought IPAs tasted mostly like feet. And I don't know what changed, but now the my hops can beat up your hops is kind of what I'm looking for. I would not be surprised to find that there's a beer named My Hops Can Beat Up Your Hops. Yeah, you would really like uh, X1101 that the... Uh, uh, the tall grass eight bit ale. I don't. That's probably not available in your area. It's more more local here in Kansas. Well, uh, fifty. The one thing you should avoid is anything that's IPA from Stone Brewery. You're not gonna like it. It's very hoppy and very mean tasting. Do you guys have Deschutes out there? I'm pro- I'm probably not uh, pronouncing it correctly. I believe they're out of. Uh, uh, Colorado. Almost all of their stuff tends toward the hoppy. Not that I've seen. Well, Taj, do you have a libation? Well, as everybody probably noticed, I'm in the process of living, losing my voice because of a cold. So um, what I'm drinking tonight is some uh, throat coat tea with lemon squeezed into it and some honey, just so I have a voice to get through this. You are mis- missing a key ingredient there, sir. Something tells me it has alcohol involved. Yes, and not just because that's the trend. It's a drink my father always used to make for me as a sore throat remedy. They call it a hot toddy. It's hot tea 
lemon, honey, and whiskey. Yeah, I'll pass on that. You can do brandy if you don't like whiskey. Actually, if I was going to drink anything, it would probably be whiskey. I mean, it's right there. True, true, so true. Well, that just leaves you, Pokey. Well, mine's almost boring because this might be the third show in a row where I've got a, a smutty nose. As I said before, they're quickly becoming my favorite brewery. This one's a robust porter. Go get some. It's fantastic. So, But instead of reviewing that and, and giving you a full review because it's, it's a porter, it's robust, it's everything it says it is, and it's fantastic. Other than doing that, I'd like to review a product if you guys don't mind. As long as they're not paying you. No, they're not paying me. Good enough. So I bought a Spiderco Triangle Sharpmaker, which is a, a knife sharpener, and that thing is fantastic. It's a little kind of block thing, and you put a couple of guards on it so you don't cut your hand off if you slip, and it comes with different... Um, they're like real high-tech ceramic stones. I think they said they were... Uh, ruby-like or garnet-like in in their hardness and and texture and um they seem really super smooth but but it's genius because they're triangles you set them in this block with the point facing in and it creates a little point of high pressure even though it's not all that rough and it does a very quick job of of grinding the metal down to sharpen the knife and then when you're done with that step, the next step is to take the exact same stone and turn it so that you're you're uh, sharpening on the flat, which reduces that pressure and it grinds much slower and gets it much smoother. And it comes with two sets of stones, so that gives you four steps of sharpening. And uh, it does a really quick job of making a sharp uh, a knife literally razor sharp. I mean, I I I test a knife by, you know, shaving hairs off my arm. And I, it's been able to do that with every knife that I've tried on it yet. Really, really fantastic product. Does excellent, excellent job. I was telling a guy at work about it, and he asked me if I would sharpen his pocket knife. So I, I brought the thing in, and I was able to sharpen his pocket knife to, literally to a hair-splitting razor um, in our 10-minute break period. And it was uh, it's worth every penny I paid for. I think it's a little expensive. I think it's probably 60 or 70 bucks, but um, it was worth every penny. I've got every knife in my house razor sharp now. I may need to get one of those because I've got my two everyday carry knives that are just, well, dull. Yeah, Pokey, make sure you put that in the show notes. Uh, sounds like what I need for when I went off to the fire. I lost all my knives and I bought Buck 845. It's a folding knife and it's, it's I think, the best folding knife I've ever had. I can't recommend it too much, but it's, it's time I renew the edge on it. Can you say again what the knife is? Buck 845. Oh, right on. Okay. Yeah, that sharpener is one of my favorite sharpeners. I use I use that constantly. One, like pro tip, if you look around, Lansky sells these. They look like little sponges. They kind of feel like sponges too. They're these eraser blocks. And if you if you use your sharpening stones too much, they'll get the metal shavings will get kind of crusted up on it. You take this little eraser and you just whack it down the side of the rods and it just cleans all that off. And it's like brand new. And I think they're like two or three bucks to buy one. It's totally an awesome purchase. So it's a sharpener for your sharpener. It's more like a cleaning utensil for your sharpener. That's a really good tip. Yeah, that's what you would use. And I bet I have something that would work just the same. But you can buy these giant erasers that are like that for cleaning out uh, grinding wheels. 
and I bet it's the exact same thing. But you can also throw the uh, the stones in the dishwasher to, to clean the metal out of them too. I'm always scared to do that because I'm afraid that you know it. My dumb luck, something will fall on it and crack them. So I've been doing this because I, I I sharpen knives a lot. It's like my zen. So <laughs> I wind up cleaning it constantly, and it works. I have a a Lansky uh, ceramic rod set for like kitchen knives. And it works for that, too. So anything that has kind of like the ceramic rod systems or even just like regular stones, if you do, if you dry sharpen, it's it's great. Yeah, for sure. And uh, and I all right. Here's since we're doing with the pro tips, I'll give you two pro tips on this thing. Uh, the first is that I bought an extra set because it comes with medium and fine stones. And I bought a set of extra fine stones for this one or, or triangle rods are not really stone uh, i bought a set of extra fine and they are utterly useless the knife is so sharp after using the fine stones you you absolutely don't need the extra fines i mean it is it is shaving sharp and all i've been able to do with the extra fine stones is put a burr on the knife that i then have to strop off of it <laughs> Yeah, it's once you, once it get, the metal gets so thin, there's no way for it not to roll over. Uh, so exactly, like you you get to a point where you've sharpened to dullness and it's gone full circle. Yeah, exactly. And then you can strop it, and it brings it right back. But um, yeah, the extra fine stones, I, I they're useless. Don't spend the extra. I don't know. I think it was thirty bucks I spent on those, and I, I haven't found a use for them. And the other pro tip I'll give you: this knife sharpener comes with a video. Uh, fantastic video. It's about 45 minutes long and it is worth 45 minutes of your time to learn how to use this knife sharpener correctly because you can sharpen anything with it. They, they show you how to do, you know, straight blades, serrated blades, um, straight edge razors, axes. I mean, you name it, fingernail clippers, potato peelers. They tell you how to sharpen everything. But what the guy says at the beginning he says is that the stones kind of come out of the factory with a little bit of a glaze on them. And he said, uh, eventually the knife will break the glaze, but if you want to do that quicker, you can rub the stones against each other. And the pro tip is do not rub the stones each other in a way that you're you're rubbing the same point because I cut deep grooves into, not super deep, but you can feel them and so can the knife. I cut grooves into the two rough stones of mine, which renders one point and two sides of each stone utterly useless. So don't do that. Yeah, I'll second that 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 system is my everyday carry now is a folder, but it's like a modified mini kukri style blade. So it's got the big belly on it. It's the only thing I have that will sharpen it consistently sharp across all the, the angles on it. So, I mean, it's if you, if you like weird blade geometries and stuff, it's definitely the sharpener to get for that. Yeah, the, I will say the. um you know, I was able to put a quick edge on the the guy at work on his knife, but when he pulled it out, it was a it's a folding knife, and I forget who he said made it. It had a Snap On brand on it, but he said it wasn't made by Snap On. It's made by a, a you know well regarded knife maker, but it was a curved blade with a a drop point, like a a, a drastically drop point, and the blade when I was sharpening it, running it down the sharpener, it felt like a consistent radius and it 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 almost felt like i mean the knife was big folded up but it felt like someone made a folding i think it's pronounced ulu the the uh the eskimo blades it just you know it had a point to it but it's not a point that has that serves any purpose and um wow was that thing easy to sharpen <laughs> it's the easiest knife i've ever i've ever sharpened yeah that's a kershaw knife i saw that 
Um, I forget where I saw it, but yeah, it, it looks pretty wicked. Yeah, if you want to learn how to sharpen, if you've never sharpened a knife before, and you want to learn how to sharpen a knife and feel like you're a pro your first time, get get a knife with that shape <laughs> and get this system, and you will be a pro. And and at least at that knife, you'll be a pro very quickly. Mm, I've got a couple of Gerbers that I carry, switch back and forth with. One's a spring, it's lock and then spring assist, and the other's a parabody. That one of those is in my pocket if I am not in my house. Yeah, I, I carry a tiny little knife. It's got maybe like an inch and a half blade, and it's a spring-assisted opening, so it just pops open with one hand, and it's just cheap and Chinese, but it seems to hold an edge fairly well, and it was like $2, so I bought a dozen of them, and I don't care if I lose it, even though I haven't lost it. The other thing that I like about this, the, the Spyderco Triangle Sharp Maker, uh, as it is, it is branded, it's fairly lightweight, and... Um, I wouldn't mind carrying this if I was going camping. This is, I mean, it's it's a little heavier than what you would probably want to carry camping, but, you know, I would not hesitate to take it with me if I was going on, like, a long hike and I was going to be away from roofs for a while. I wouldn't mind taking this. And that's, I think, all I have to say about the sharp maker, the knife sharpener. So, all right, spoilers, guys. What did you What did you think about the, the plot and all that? Well, you know, certainly it got somewhat exciting. I mean, this is not a big action book, but uh, so it's, a, it's a nice little study of how society might felt differently in the future. And I would say perhaps the author has a bias that, per, you know, monog- in a communal living may be preferable to, uh, you know, to two people living in monogamy. Like I said, usually it seemed like they didn't they didn't go in that much detail. It seemed seemed like most people settled down into one on one sexual partners, uh, even even though they were in a multi group. The the group was more for it taking taking care of the kids like it takes a village i thought it was interesting that the way because even they even they joke in the book about like it's not always an orgy <laughs> that that the certain character is interested in that and it's not what it is the fact that they are able to inside these affinity groups separate out emotional relationships from sexual relationships those two things can coexist in in the same person or persons or they don't have to you can have an emotional partner and you can have a sexual partner and they could be to- two totally different things but they, they are with, they are within your group and so that's just an, an interesting like way of looking at it that's just something that's so foreign to our way that we do now well a a, a perfect example like this is definitely a spoiler uh, St- Stella's family triad. Uh, Stella become, we'll explain later how Stella becomes a major character in their society. But because of conflict with the retros, you know, the retros have been doing minor acts of terrorism against the triads, or not uh, against the affinity groups. And early in the book, uh, Stella's family and uh, George, the the head of the Retros, their Ambrose, George Ambrose, their families have a you know a conflict when the kids and the the kid didn't necessarily say all the uh, uh, Retros were like this, but certainly the majority they're completely ignoring the uh, 
population caps that are, you know, set to, you know, try to keep a balance so that they don't outstrip their ability to uh, feed themselves. That's one thing where I might have agreed with the retros, the the complete boring, a a pretty much set in stone uh, reality that if you have too many people, you're not going to be able to feed yourselves on this little settlement where they took things kind of self. They had a run-in where on their... uh, home Stella and her sister Angie, Angie uh, Amber the uh, kids from the the younger children from the Ambrose family who they are just you know not very well acquainted with they pick up rocks and throw them I think it's Aunt Amber gets hit which is strange since he's the one who goes into the retros uh, I can't remember now which which one but actually he gives her stitches puts her in the hospital for a day you know gives concussion and there's a trial on this, and it's just this kids being kids. You know, def- definitely there's this animosity between the groups behind this. But this 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 was early in the story. Later in the story, the Ambrose move, move away from after this incident uh, from Danner, the town where uh, Stella and, and Amber family live. But it's it's shown at the end of the book they instrumental in organizing a fire in the family winery and the two, the two fathers one of them on his was robert runs the uh uh the refinery and is edward is a scholar a historian maybe i'm getting that backwards but yeah, yeah i am getting that backwards robert's a historian edward runs, edward runs the uh family winery and so robert has a office he doesn't have room left in the house, so Edward gives him an office in the attic of the refinery and their not the refinery, the uh, winery. And the retros come by and they set it on fire. They've been they've been doing arson and you know <laughs> some some major crimes and some less crimes, trying to terrorize the uh, affinity groups. And it is said it you know was not an intended murder. They didn't expect anybody to be in there. But of course, Robert runs up to save all his research. So he's throwing all the original books from the colony that haven't been replicated digitally out the window. And Edward goes up to save him. Finally, you know they're they're both trying to get books, but it's, it's obvious they're not going to get out. So Ed tosses Robert out the window. And he falls and breaks his leg, and before Edward can get out, the whole winery collapses on him, and he, you know, he's he's killed in the fire. I guess what I was getting at is what's known in the book as the broken entities. Because fairly late in the book, you learn that you know Edward was by, so you know, and Robert's gay, and the uh, Stella's. Uh, mother, she she's straight. So even though there's these two people left in the tri, two people left from the triad, they have no physical relationship between them. So that's sort, you know, that's sort of theme of the book that you know when you it, these affinities are great, but it really gets messed up when you lose somebody out of these affinities. I don't think it necessarily meant that the one guy was bi and the other guy was gay. It's just that their friendship was that close. I don't. I didn't say specifically it was a sexual relationship. So I. I, uh, I don't know. I didn't make that leap to just assume that it was. I figured it might be, but it might not be. Just the same. 
No, yeah. I, I think they made that pretty pretty plain, actually. No, I'm with Pokey. I think that they did not make that plain. They could very well have been a non-physical relationship. I mean, they said it was always the two guys, but they didn't say that it was a physical relationship at all. Okay, I read that differently. I don't. I, I, you're right. They didn't come out and say it, but I don't think they could. I don't think the author could have implied it more strongly. Well, I mean, and there's this thing where, and I'm thinking specifically of Max. They even say that once his affinity was broken, his connection was to the other man. And it doesn't say whether it's sexual or emotional. To me, I imagine it's emotional that once that partner died, you could see him just kind of going down the dark path to where he wound up. That even the other people in his affinity are just looking at him like, what, what is this? What are you? Right. And I, you know, I, I don't think this whole affinity thing would work if just one, you know, Somebody was always the odd man out, odd woman out in in the affinity as far as sexually, because we we see how you know it affects. And this this is a big reveal, uh, and we probably ought to get into this next. Stella becomes the solo at twenty years old, and or it's been fine. You know, it, it's been old man, old men in their sixties. Who don't you know for years? Who don't have much time left? Or, or old women? There, there was you know they, they mentioned female solos, but you know it's always it's always been people who are sort of past their their age of sexuality. Not not to insult people who are sixty, who might be listening because I'm only ten years away from that. But you know, but she you know the way she is so emotionally broken up that she is looking. She's only twenty. She thinks that she's looking at the rest of her life without a fickle partner, you know, and that, you know, that's one of the main things that really affects her emotionally when she becomes uh, solo. So, yeah, I, I, I think with with that amount of importance, the offering on that, I think you would be looking at a really broken society that you're put into one of these groups and if you don't have a partner of, of your orientation that's just the odd man out for the rest of your life because everybody you know everybody most or at least mo- the, the 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 huge majority of people they're uh, put into an event about 1920 and so yeah I, w- I think if the match are constantly making relationships where a person's not going to have a, uh, a a sexual partner that I don't I don't think people would be very happy with this system. Well, I mean, there are examples in our own culture of people who choose celibacy. So, I mean, I'm sure that they're something similar in their culture, but it seems like the matcher does a fairly good job. Nobody complains about their affinities. It's only when somebody's gone that was supposed to be there that any of the problems even begin. So, I mean, and it seems like in the past, before Stella, it was kind of not a thing that they would break the affinities and build new ones. But when she does it, they're like, oh, okay, and then fix this problem. So maybe that's just another thing that they're adding that would make it work better. Yeah, but Yes, it just works, but you can't see how it works, and you can't look into the thing or figure it out. This was like a society set up by Steve Jobs. Well, one thing that they did say, I I completely agree with you. Let me start by saying I completely agree with you. But the one thing they did say was that 
once the matcher put them in these affinities, they felt like they found the people they should have found anyway. It just sped that up. But there's no way to tell for sure because, you, as they say later, you can't take the same people and both send them to the matcher and not send them to the matcher and see if things turn out the same. Yes and no. Okay, now I – while I liked the story um, and I and I kept listening to, to hear what was going on and I would have finished this one even if it wasn't an audiobook club book, I did have a lot of problems with the story and that was one of them where – I'm trying to relate to these people in this lifestyle that is foreign to to my experiences. And the only thread that I can grasp onto is that it works. You know, so why mess with it? But then later on in the book, the later you get, the more you find out that, well, it's only barely working because the other solos weren't really that good at their job. So it could work a lot better. So then it doesn't just work. So which one is it? And that was that was one of the issues I had with this story that would take me out of the story and make it, you know, less believable and less uh, suspension of disbelief. Well, see, I think that it does work, but the way that Stella does it works better. So it's not it wasn't broken before, but it also wasn't the best it could be. Well, yeah, I get that. But so does that mean that there's really one person out there for you or, well, it could be one person or a different person. I mean, and I, and, and I know what you're saying where there's, okay, well, maybe it's four people. Maybe there's four people out there for you. But maybe now it's four different people and they would have been the better ones, which means that these people using the matcher were wrong to begin with. So I just, I mean, it really kind of took me out of it again. Well, but the thing that with Stella's was it wasn't necessarily different matches. It was bigger matches. So, you know, where an older solo would have seen, oh, well, these three people go together. Well, but those three people would actually work better as a subset of these five people to make a stronger affinity that works better without interfering on any of the interrelations internally. Well, I mean, there you can see how... I mean, if X and Y were pretty good, Z are, then the matcher is going to, you know, select X and Z, which leaves Y out in the cold. But, you know, and depending on, uh, you know, personalities, Y might not have been comfortable, you know, in a multiple relationship. So those are the people that the matcher puts in, puts in the duos. Y gets with R or something, which is maybe not the optimal, what, the best choice, but all overall, every, everything is uh, the best choice. But there, you know, there, and this is one of the conflicts when Stella Solo, we haven't really talked about how or why, that uh, she does no duos, and it's because it seems like the matcher is of the opinion that. You know, these multiple relationships are inherently stronger than a, a one-on-one relationship. I kind of question the fact that the, the matcher is constantly referred to as a machine. Maybe because she is obviously the youngest solo that they've ever picked or has ever been picked because everybody else was picked by people, basically. How much of it was, because there is a connection between her, how much of it was maybe the computer was like, oh, this is new, and this is a new parameter, and maybe I can integrate this into what I'm already doing, or even 
the matcher had a connection to two people this time, not just the solo, but the Jersey, which is a terrible name. They should have come up with something better than that. Um, and, and how much did that connection manipulate the programming it already had to give it new possibilities that it didn't have before? Well, I, I see the matcher as sort of akin to Star Trek's Guardian of Forever. When Kirk asked it, are you being or machine? And it pro it, it, tells him I am both in there. So this is, you know, this is, this is alien stuff completely outside our kin. And so we haven't brought it up. So people won't be confused. Now, halfway through the book, Stella is going to her matching Amber because she was attracted to, was a Julian that was George Ambrose's son. She's done this act of rebellion and gone away to be a retro and, and uh, has, mar- has married Julian. So this is, this is a huge thing. Oh, her sister, you know, for heartache and emotional turmoil. So Stella's going there for friend, and, and part of it is... And this is strange. If if they're twin sisters, they should have been born the same day. However, there there is there is something in there about you know Amber had been eligible to go a year before because she was older than Stella. That doesn't make sense. It seems to me like maybe something got rewritten and then it didn't get propagated all the way uh, through the uh, through the storyline. But so Stella goes to the matching and. The old matcher die, or well, the re- the recently selected matcher, and I'm sorry, the recently selected solo, uh, who, who was put in put in place by Elder Barry. Uh, he he has a massive coronary right to be in the matching, and since there had been previously uh, evidence that the matcher can reach out and kill people who are a threat, or at least mess them up. Earlier in the story, five retros try to blow the matcher up with, with industrial explosives because there's no weapons allowed on these columns. And before they could get to it, you know, the, mat- the matcher reached out and broke their minds in in, uh, in various ways. So that's one plot point in the story. So I'm surprised that nobody ever had the idea because this matcher, or sorry, this solo had been manipulated by the elder to ignore what the matcher was telling him and to, you know, create his own list of affinities that uh, uh, benefit uh, Max Berry politically that, you know, that, that he wasn't, that he wasn't killed by the matcher there than just natural causes. But, you know, as the story goes, you know, the, the matcher would normally pick a new solo from a lot of candidates, you know, who would, you know, people would physically march down and get close to the matcher in this amphitheater. And at this time, there were, since it was, since it was the matching, you had thousands of people in this amphitheater. And of all those people, uh, the matcher picked Stella Sin to be the new solo. So now we know why she was important to this story from the beginning. But her connection to the matcher was so strong, she needed an anchor of some sort or another conduit. It's like creating more bandwidth. You know, there's so much bandwidth, she couldn't take it all. So the matcher picks a Jersey, the, uh, you know, the Space Scout, who has decided, like 
you know, his predecessor, which went native, that he can't really finish his report without getting a matcher banned and being matched. Though he's, you know, for it seems like his priorities just in a few months have completely changed. I mean, when he got to the planet, his only priority was to accomplish this mission and you know, continue his service. And he's doing something here where he knows, unless he just, he, he may think at the time he goes down in there, he just can ignore this affinity and leave. Though his predecessor obviously, you know, shows that you don't, you just don't do that. But he he is, you know, he's selected to be sort of her anchor in the storm and add, you know, add his support. Though she doesn't realize it at the time that uh, the matcher selects him to, you know, as, as a second conduit for his power. So, and that's how she, she's a matcher at the end. Her her bracelet turns red. You know, each each affinity bracelets turn a different color depending on you know which affinity. You know, uh, I don't know if we've mentioned that. Like, was triads green, something like that. So, so this is one of the major turning points. Uh, Stella becomes the solo. Max, Max is horrified and pretty much kidnaps her and whisks her away to the capital, which is called First. And then Jersey, he's left. Nobody knows about him in Stella, but he has this psychic link to her that, you know, he, he he's got, got like a, uh, a compass. So he always knows which direction to go to get to her. And he, all he knows is he has to get to her. I'm glad you brought up the whole Stella becoming the solo thing because it reminded me of the worst line in the entire book. Um, I think I audibly groaned. And I forget who says it, but it's something like, she must have been the person who wanted it the most in the whole <laughs> amphitheater. And in my head, I was like, that's almost as bad as like episode three. Queen Amidala died from a no! broken heart. <laughs> Take a drink, by the way. <laughs> Gladly. Yeah, I, I I think with the Elderberry joke, I'm surprised there wasn't a Han Solo joke in there someplace. I think his name was pronounced Barry with an A, but maybe that's why we all didn't catch it. Um, now, see, I I kept getting taken out of this story. As much as I wanted to hear where it went and how it finished, it there were a few parts that you know kind of made me groan. And I think that, boy, I, I don't want to sound too critical, though. I'm going to be critical here. So, I mean, where do I start? First thing, I guess, I'll start with maybe some of the terminology where it really threw me just as an example, because uh, it happened later later on in the book, but it was really pronounced in my mind, is when uh, all the hostages were taken, they went up to the matcher, and they were all carrying glow sticks to see with. They're just flashlights. Why doesn't the author just call them flashlights? She calls them glow sticks as if there's some, you know, that, ooh, now it's sci-fi because it's not called a flashlight anymore. I mean, either it was a flashlight or it was a torch, or, or, or not a torch, excuse me, a um, a lantern. You know, that's all you'd really want if you were walking. You, nobody's holding, you know, sticks that glow. That's just a lantern. You know what I mean? And that kind of thing takes me out of a sci-fi story where they throw that in just it seem it feels like they throw it in just to make it sci-fi because this really isn't a very sci-fi story except that there's glow sticks and flying cars and the alien computer i'll stop for now i'll get back because there's a few more but i'll stop for now to hear what you guys have to say no i i took glow sticks as literally glow sticks like we have now that you take it out of the package and you 
crack the thing and there's a chemical reaction and you get a dim amount of light uh, as long as the uh, chemical reaction is going on. I mean, this is one of the the things we haven't mentioned about this world. You know, even compared to our modern day, it is kind of, you know, technologically uh, backward because that's expensive to export to a new world. I mean, you talk about cars, Pokey, but there's only like, 13 of them on the entire planet, as far as we can tell. One for each of the uh, uh, provincial counselors, because they get around, and another one for the solo. There aren't any other mentioned. Everybody else, you have a railway system where the hub is the, you know, is the city first, and pretty much if you want to go any place on the planet, you have to take a train to first and then get on another train and go out where, wherever it is you're going. They didn't talk about completing a circle around, but they, they didn't that done yet. And there's like golf cart sort of things. That's it. You know, any anything there than that, you walk. I mean, my two big criticisms with, with the book in general is, and the first one is kind of going off what 50 just said, is scale. I cannot understand how big or small this planet was. It seemed like everything was within a country, but then because people were just darting back and forth like it was nothing. Or maybe that's just, you know, where they're at. But then they talk about how long it takes and it, it just didn't make any sense. And the uh, my other criticism would be where our book last month, the writer was extremely good at writing action. I think this author, that's not her strong suit. Whenever the action happened, it was very just kind of like, oh, this happened. And I, I didn't get into it as much. No, I I, I kind of saw it as Todd that I think I broke 50. <laughs> it seems to happen every week. Why do you keep doing that to the poor man? You hear me now? Yeah. Okay, what I was saying is you pretty much have an Earth-like mass for the planet to have Earth-like uh, gravity. So, you know, it, you know to, to go back to Star Trek, in-class planets or whatever, it seems pretty... Uh, Gonna have to be a pretty narrow definition. As as far as this is Taj or well, it was X eleven. Uh, I I get the impression that only a small since this is a colony, only a part of this planet is settled. So they you know they may they may be over an area you know the size of the original thirteen colonies all on one continent. I mean you're gonna, you're going you're just gonna complicate. There may be multiple continents, but you're gonna be complicate things if you try to. You know, settle a second one before you're done with the first. Oh no, that- no. That's see, this is this. Before you go too far down this road, you're you're saying all this in argument against my point that she didn't just call flashlights flashlights. Um, if resources are hard to import, then the last thing they're going to want is chemical glow sticks. Even if resources are free, the last thing you want, if you're walking in the dark at night, is a chemical glow stick. They don't show you anything. Glow sticks are good for being seen, not for seeing with. So I, I don't buy that point. The other thing is that, you know, this settlement. Oh, 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 come on. Glow sticks are good for raves. That's what glow sticks are good for. That's, it's, it's, yeah, not- I've never been to a rave. I'm too old. I'm sorry. <laughs> And I have to take the credit this time. I think I broke Pokey because that, that last bit we got about half of. Well, I was saying that you cannot see with glow sticks. You can be seen with glow sticks. That's what they're for. They're not for seeing. They're not for illuminating what's in front of you. So I, I just don't buy it that that's why they had 
glow sticks and she called glow sticks. I just don't buy it that they're chemical. I mean, maybe it's a chemical reaction, but you need enough light to be seen with or, I mean, to see where you're going with. And she even made the point that, ooh, the matcher got so bright that it looked like the glow sticks weren't even on. So are, is the matcher fairly dim? It's, I mean, that it's just not that impressive? Or do we have, maybe we have sci-fi futury glow sticks. I, I, do you other two guys think I'm breaking up? Is it 50s connection? I'm hearing him just fine. Yeah, I think it's, it's just fine. So, you know, I don't buy that. The other part that I, I didn't buy right from the beginning, uh, and I understand why she did this, but I, I, I don't like shortcuts in writing. When you can create the universe create the universe and i don't like shortcuts and it felt like a shortcut is the fact that they put a limit on population so that the economy could sustain it that flies in the face of everything we know about economics and i understand that economics is is the furthest thing that we have from an exact science but you do not grow an economy by limiting population you 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 grow population in order to grow economy so that that was like you know rule number one of reality was broken right there but they didn't want to not grow population but they wanted to grow it in a controlled way so that the population didn't spike and then they had to import food which is economically unfeasible they wanted to do a slow burn grow on population so that it was controlled so that it was was sustainable so you don't have the baby boomers and then oh my god we can't feed all these people sure but you get baby boomers by having a boom in economy you what they were talking about was a replacement population they were talking about zero population growth other than you know what what people might uh, emigrate to this place it's you know what i mean it's just it's that's not what it is you you don't have a population spike by letting people have babies, that's how you have steady growth. That's how we've always had steady growth since the beginning of time. But but they talked about it was replacement and then there were exceptions made so that the population grew at a controllable, predictable rate. It wasn't simply a replacement population. There was some allowed growth, but it was a planned, controlled growth. Sure, but again, you're not going to grow your economy unless you have some sort of manufacturing, some sort of of, uh, production going on. You don't have production without people, and you don't have people without population growth. So, you know, what she was saying, her reasons for doing that just don't work in the real world. And that kept, I kept having to, you know, again, suspend disbelief, suspend disbelief. And I know I complain about it all the time, but I really like stories where I don't have to suspend my disbelief or at least where the suspension is is viable in the context of the story. And this story, the context is our universe or one very similar to ours. So that was really hard for me to get over. And it 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 kept becoming a point that I had a hard time getting over. In several different ways, in, in, in several of the storytelling plots, kept reminding me that this her construct was broken. And, I, and, and in saying that, I will also say I get why she did it. The only reason this is sci-fi is because she needed a... In space. 
Well, no, not just in space. She was looking for a tabula rasa upon which to write her story. She needed a blank slate, a, a clean sheet of paper to draw her story. And if you're going to do that, there's no better way to do it than to create a new world. And she just didn't paint a very big picture is what it felt like. You know, that's why all the colonies were within it felt almost literally like stone throwing distance you know if they were if this was a big place big enough that they have trains that can bring each other you know bring people from one place to another it just i don't know none of it really seemed to be stitched together all that well back on your population thing the re- it, the reason it didn't bother me other than it takes a lot more discontinuity to really pull me out of the story than that. But I think that at least to me, the idea that you know you have to slow grow the population to develop the infrastructure, to develop the agriculture in a controlled way didn't bother me. I mean I know that you have to grow all of those things, but doing it in a controlled way prevents, well, sporadic natural things that are uncontrollable. Right, exactly, which I'm jealous that you can suspend disbelief so easily. I'm jealous of that ability that you have, uh, first of all. But when you say that, you're you're saying that they've now taken economics and turned it into an exact science, that they're able to manage all these things. And if you're going to say that, say it. Don't just imply it because that's a bridge too far for me. You know, I'm sorry. Well, I think they implied that specific thing in multiple ways in that they said that rather than using their military forces and this being the like the human empire for lack of a better word because I don't remember what they called it, had a military force but didn't use it for anything except existing conflicts, they used economics and that kind of implies that they've narrowed economics down to where they – Almost had an exact science, which I know is completely impossible, but I just chalked it up. Even now, there are idiots that say all kinds of ridiculous stuff about economics and make policy based on it, even though it's pretty pretty solidly been disproven. And they it, that doesn't stop people from setting policy. So, I mean, I could see where if somebody was in charge of a plan, they'd be like, yeah, this is what I believe. So this is what we're going to do because that's the way this works. So you're saying that they – rather than it being a perfect science, that someone was just wrong and set their policy that way anyway? Well, I mean they, they kind of th- – these people aren't part of the whatever it was. I forget. It starts with a C. Uh, I forget what it was. Was it a compact? Yes, the compact. Yes, That's what it was. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Um, that this was sort of a backwater world that was just getting started and really their economics wasn't up to the par where they were even considered to be a member. So I mean – it could just be that somebody who thinks they know what they're doing and doesn't is running everything and making policy that's that's stupid. And I can totally see that being a possibility. So I don't have to I don't have to suspend my disbelief that it's a bad policy. I just have to <laughs> suspend my disbelief that, you know, the people in charge know what they're doing, which is way easier to do. Yeah, but Wait, the other there's, part there's of that disbelief there. <laughs> the other part of that is why bother going to a whole nother planet? If your goal is to be part of the compact, if you got your own whole planet to yourself and there seems to be only about 70 or 80 people on it, to hell with the compact. Let's make a planet here. Why did people come here from Europe? Okay, I mean, it because it got too crowded and there wasn't enough stuff for everybody. 
Exactly. They came here to not be a part of Europe anymore. They didn't come here to be part. I mean, yes, Europe funded it because they wanted more territory, but the people who came here came here to get to not be part of Europe anymore. And that's what I'm saying about these people on this planet. They went out of their way to go populate this planet and all they're working towards is to be part of the thing that they left and that you know I, I didn't realize it until just now but that's also unbelievable i i disagree because you know one of the one of the main reasons for the revolution was the uh, you know the economic tyranny of the british i mean just just like what we're talking about here that uh they, well, I mean, they actively had laws so to prevent the colonists here from uh, from producing fish goods. So because they were making so much money over on the tariffs of imported finished goods from Britain, just like in this scenario, you know, as a colony, they they are subjected to you know the the colonial Americans are subjected to high import and export. Uh, tariffs and it got it you know that that wasn't the only reason but certainly certainly a one of one of the reasons we picked rifles and started shooting at the people but 50 you just argued against your own point i think you just argued for pokey's point <laughs> yeah i would just like to apologize for our global listeners the for our american-centric use of the revolution um <laughs> it's the american revolution yeah there have been a few you're right they weren't all here no i you know just just looking at the current day uh planet pokey i'm not sure i agree with your point that you tie unrestricted unrestricted population to economic growth i mean look all the places where there are depressed economies in this world there there there's high pop there's high population density uh that is not economy that's resources that that's a lack of resources these people are on a planet they you know you're you're led to believe they have all the the raw materials that they could possibly need and you know i'm not an economist and even if i was i've already said economy is the furthest thing from an exact science i'm just saying i don't think there's an example of an economy growing at any appreciable rate for a sustained amount of time without population growth being a part of that i don't I, I don't think those things can be mutually or have ever been mutually exclusive again it's not an exact science i know it's it's not I, but i don't think there's an example of it and if there is then i'm wrong and that's fine well and i, and I mean that one difference here is they're you know they're obviously occupying a, a small part of the potential of this that they're on where we're in the situation where you know our, our population expanding and we you know, we don't have any hope in a thousand years of escaping this planet we're stuck with the one that we've got for quite some time well that's a fairly pessimistic view I, i'm not sure that i i concur with the thousand years portion but yeah we're stuck with it for now till somebody else figures out a way to travel faster than light or something well, I'm a, you know, I I think our science fiction on space travel has been too optimistic that, yeah, we have in the 20th century and, and sometime towards the end of the 21st, we're going to have faster light than light travel. I mean, that's every science fiction. 
Babylon 5, you know, all, all of them, that su- suddenly we go from being not too different than we are to, you know, expanding across the universe. I, I just, I'm, I am pessimistic that it's it's going to take a little bit longer to figure that out. I think that I read a paper or read the abstract of a paper where someone had already figured it out and it was simply a matter of being able to produce the amount, the amount of energy needed. Yeah, I was going to say getting enough power in one place. Is that the, I think uh, Albuquerque Drive, the basically like the quote unquote warp drive. Yeah, and it works just like the warp drive. Rather than actually traveling faster than light, you simply kind of bend space around you. So you're not traveling faster than light spaces or something like that. There's fundamental forces that we do not fully understand, and I, and I think understanding those fundamental forces is going to open new doors to uh, to science and technology. You know, and and I have no guess as to how far off in the future that will be. Um, but in this story, we're talking about a planet where people touch down, they settle down, and they seem to be living under restrictions of population. And what also kind of appears to be location, because, I mean, given 150 years with knowledge of, uh, I don't know, blacksmithing and, and gunpowder and some basic carpentry, um, you can settle a continent, and these people just don't seem to have done that. You know what I mean? But they want to be able to settle a continent and still have strip malls. Like hell. People go someplace so they can have land. They they want property. They want to be able to spread out and do their thing. That was the, one of the other problems I had with this story all throughout it was that these people in this story – did not act like people. They acted like characters in a story. Um, they they always did the thing that would move the plot along, not what I felt human nature would have led someone in their positions to do. That, it, like in the middle part of the book especially, that really, you know, I kept going, no, that's not how people work. That's not how people work. Like, for instance, there were no, like, macho dudes in their late teens and early 20s there were none of those you know what i mean just there was a lot of that where just this this is not how people act this is how characters act the one thing that consistently struck me in this book and it goes to your point there where they were characters not people what and or maybe it's simply they weren't people the same way that a lot of the people that i've interacted with tend to be is there was not nearly enough live and let live the whole retro versus affinity conflict could have been solved in a much easier way where, hey, we're not going to go and you're not going to make us. We're cool. Problem solved. Well, I mean, this is – and stuff like this, uh, I, I've seen sim- similar theories. Like I said, per- current day that the retros under George, they George Ambrose, they, they had as a matter of policy – that the only way we're going to uh, rule and get rid of the affinities is, is if we, you know, if we outstrip them in population. So they were having people, you know, re- removing their population limiter uh, implants. And the, and this one that we talked about, apparently, the uh, 
you know, Stella and her family are from the north, and so and the majority of the Retros lived in the south. So she she'd really never had much experience with Retros. In fact, you know, when it was you know explained to her that Ambrose family were Retros, that was something you know she'd almost never thought of. See, I I have to disagree with you again, and I'm sorry to keep doing so, but I don't think that George Ambrose was a Retro. I think he just used that cause as a as a means to his end. I don't think he I don't think he believed anything that that he was spouting to the rest of them to get them behind him. Well, he may have believed that the matcher removed free will. That part he might have believed. But the rest I I agree that he was just a power monger who saw a movement that he could catalyze to propel himself yeah whether or not he believed the matcher was was robbing these people of the free will he used it as his scapegoat so i i I think it i think it matters very little whether or not he he believed it because he he just didn't act like one of them well he was just like max he wanted power by any means possible he acted very much like a leader yeah for sure and so did everybody uh, each person who represented their faction acted like a cult leader in this book. That's why I had such a hard time relating to anybody in it. And, and early on, I was relating more to the retros than to the uh, the affinity groups. Well, Stella, after after her biological father is killed in the fire, you know, she 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 goes from not understanding retroactively being hostile towards them. I still think the whole thing could have been solved with a little more live and let live. I think that might have actually been the point of the book. I think that's what the the, the issue the book was trying to raise and and the story was an attempt to answer the question was, you know, what if we could just hang out with our friends all the time? What if we could – what if the, we surrounded ourselves with people who – we thought like and, and and loved and you know didn't have to worry too much about fighting with what, what if you know and the book was an attempt to answer that what if and well well not just that what i meant was if the retros and the affinities didn't try and each was trying to force their way of life on everyone else why can't it be enough that I found a thing that works for me if you want it cool and if not that's cool too yeah but well, we can't I, do that now even here on Earth, <laughs> we can't do that. That's the impossible thing right now. That's the sci-fi this, part of it, Touch. I was going to say, this is sci-fi. They're supposed to be able to do things we can't do, like be excellent to each other. All and sci-fi party on, dude. All sci-fi is not Star Trek. Take a drink. I think we've proved the thing that uh, Pokey and I would definitely not be in an affinity together, and that's good because it'd be, it'd be kind of a boring uh, group if we all agreed on every point of the story. I don't know, maybe. I just think we see stories a different way. So, what did everybody think about the big climax? Was it satisfying? Did you see it coming? Thoughts? Deus Ex Machina? Yeah. Yeah, quite a little bit. I, I didn't, but as I said earlier, I tend to get into a story where I'm just kind of experiencing it with the characters. So I don't really think about, well, this story's a lot like these other stories, so this is probably what's going to happen. That doesn't usually occur to me. I'm simply letting it kind of wash over me. 
as soon as she said earlier in the book that she had never touched the core and she didn't know what would happen when she did, the first thing that instantly popped in my brain, oh, it'll just download into you. Like, that's that's what's going to happen. I don't know if I've just read too many things where that just sort of happens or why I had that. But as soon as, as, soon as she walked up the hill for that ending, I was like, she's just going to absorb it. She'll destroy it and then come down and whoop everybody's ass, which is exactly what happened. That's a good catch. And maybe I wasn't paying very close attention. I did not catch that, but now that you say it, it 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 seems like I should have. Yeah, I I didn't see it quite so much. There, I you know I, fi- I figured she would somehow get deep enough into the matcher to tell them to explain to the matcher, I'm not really the threat to you. It's George and his crony. It was zap them, you know. But I, I saw her walk to the core more like watching uh, the uh, the cap the warp core. And wrath on drink. Damn it, I was going for that because everything comes back to Star Trek. I mean, I'm sorry. Oh, no, it's that's it's pretty much a standard at this point. Star Trek, Star Wars, your science fiction du jour. We always manage to tie it back to one or more of them. So, how is the matcher like Spider Man? That's what we need to come up with. Well, with great power comes great responsibility. Because it fried all those people's brains when its spidey senses tingled. <laughs> I will I will concede that point. You win. See, I thought that the ending, the fact that she could just download this thing and then re-upload it, way too convenient. Just way. And, and she instamagically knew how to do that. And that she just made a, a giant assumption and a giant leap of faith. And of course it works out because she's the protagonist. I just, I find that just way too convenient in writing. And I, I don't like when writers do that. Plot bullets, anyone? Yeah, pretty much. And, and not just plot bullets, but you know, double ringed plot bullets that have to fit into each other. Well, we haven't talked about her spotty sense where she, see, you know, everyone who is an entity, and she could see darkly uh, the the retros, you know, uh, through a mental connection, and she couldn't see Jersey at all until after she became the matcher, and it was only because she was suddenly seeing the back channel that he represented. That part I did buy, but it leads me to a thing that I didn't, so I'll let someone else talk first. Well, no, I, I was going to say pretty much the same thing is that I completely bought that because she's kind of connected to the matcher and somehow somehow those bands are how it sees people and connects people. And so if the matcher can see people, she can see people the way that it would. So I, I totally bought that. Well, I didn't say I didn't buy it. Uh, now, one thing that I thought, you know, they, they glopped over, maybe it happened in the three-year gap between the uh, – and end of the story in the epilogue, you know, that when it was revealed to the general public that, you know, that Stella and, and, and Jersey had a physical relationship, you know, that sort of a cult-like thing, despite all their efforts to make it one, that there weren't people with uh, torches and pitchforks saying that, no, the solo needs to be celibate. See, we can think alike sometimes. I agree with you on that one. I must have missed the epilogue because none of this is ringing a bell. The guy writing the book, Cults of the, uh, what do we call it? I, I call it, well, Cults of the Commonwealth or whatever it is, the, uh, at the, at Compact. the end of, of Compact at the end, three years later. 
and he's been looking for the solo and and he you know he 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 runs into both her and jersey at at the end of you know because hall the big hall has been damaged by a falling tree and he's the only guy because he's you know i'm not it's not my i'm not gonna in but uh, jersey comes and gives him a cup of coffee and talks to him and you know this this is the guy they've been actively avoiding but you know on his last day on the planet they come you know they come feel him out but they don't reveal who they are my other thing with the epilogue is when she's talking and she's oh i felt the call home as soon as she said that in my brain i was like nope nope don't do that no sequel just leave it be <laughs> just walk away slowly and nobody gets hurt yeah I, <laughs> that's a good point i was going to yeah. mention that they they she leaves it wide open for a sequel, but the thing is, you know, they, they talk about whoever this race is, they must live, you know, for, you know, practically forever, and, you know, our lives will be over in their instant. You know, we would have no concept of who we are. So, she does ever sequel, does she do a sequel with the same characters, or does she do it on the same planet a thousand years later? The only thing about the matcher that interests me is the mystery behind it. It's a cool thing that does a cool thing. But if I know about it, it's just like explaining midichlorians. I don't need to know why it works. I don't need to know how it works. It's just the fact that it works is cool enough. That's it. Leave it alone. You don't have to explain it. Yeah, I think stretching this setting over two books is is stretching it too thin. Yeah, I, I don't must- know. I don't know. I might be interested in the second book. We'll We'll see what happens, but... When when was this book first produced? I don't know. I must have missed the epilogue because I'm not. None of this is ringing any bells, which is disappointing because it sounds like it was good. It was again fairly convenient. It, you know, it, it it wrapped everything up nicely with a bow on it, is is what the the epilogue did. But it was, uh, you know, episode twenty. One of the things that the what I thought was the core of the plot of this story and I found exceptionally frustrating that it was just brushed away as if it didn't even have to exist except as a specific plot bullet was the commission that was there to find out if this thing was an alien or not they never even bothered to go look at the thing and when they decided it was not an alien but it's doing something why is an alien artifact any less interesting than an alien? This this frustrated me to no end that they would just go, oh yeah, okay, it's fine. Bye now. Oh, I thought I thought that was uh, pretty well explained by uh, Jersey's attitude. I mean, if had they decided through their you know prime directive, again back to back to Star Trek, but I mean uh, this is something we haven't talked about uh, the retros call the compact and say hey there's this alien thing which is doing mind control on our planet you need to come here and investigate and came to investigate whether it was a sentient life form or an artifact had it been they ruled it had been sentient they would have had to evacuate the planet because they're they're thinking well if there's one sentient life form on that planet we can't go in and take it over. We have to respect the rights of the uh, of the alien. It, it pretty much hinted at in, in in the last part of the book that 
you know, Jersey was thinking, well, I, I really don't think they're going to rule this as a, as a sentient alien because the compact want to pay for an exodus and relocation of the populace of this planet. Let's not even get me started on the Prime Directive. I'm rewatching DS9, and I read a really interesting article, I think linked from Reddit, about the Prime Directive and how in every usage after like the first season of Next Generation, their interpretation of it becomes totally bullshit. It becomes totally like, hey, they're not part of the Federation, so we're not touching it, instead of what it actually says of, hey, don't help pre-warp civilizations. And after reading that article... And watching some of Star Trek, it's every time they mention the Prime Directive, I just get pissed off and be like, "But you're ah! okay." But how how does that to, to you know that doesn't answer my question of how is an alien artifact any less than a live alien? Well, it, to answer that question specifically, and Fifty touched on this, their Prime Directive is. If there's an alien here, we won't settle here. If we find it after we settle, we'll leave. If it's an alien, not if it's something an alien left. Not saying it's less interesting, but it is no longer a we have to leave. So, so but that implies that if it's an alien, we all get out of there and give it its land back. But if it's not an alien, we don't even bother calling the alien artifact group to investigate. Like, there's got to be something more than just, oh, now. Well, they don't have resources to do to look into that. But yeah, they're, they're touched on the book, you know, that Jer- they have the resources Jer- to travel between planets, but they don't have the resources to investigate an alien artifact. Well, I mean, Jer- Jersey was worried, you know, if they if. You know, once the uh, I'm going to say Commonwealth. That's not right again. Compact, compact. Once the compact got there, you know, that that Key and Stella would be locked up like uh, lab animals. I'm I'm not disagreeing with you, Pohi. I think that this is they should have said, "Hey, this is still interesting. We should look at it." But the question they were there to answer is: Are we on a world where we've said we won't be? Yes or no? They determine no. They leave. Should they send someone else to say, hey, but there's still this thing we don't understand. We should go look at it. Yes, maybe if they're in Star Trek. I'm not sure that the society, the universal society that they've created really cares so much about. Okay, but picture any intelligent person in their shoes as opposed to just an actor or a character who is a tool to move this plot along. If I were to say to you, look at that thing over there, I need you to, or if you were to say to me, look at that thing over there, I need you to decide whether it's an alien or an artifact or some other thing. And my determination is that it is not an alien, but it's probably an alien computer. You don't think to say, wow, I wonder if it's an AI, which would make it an intelligence, which would make it alien. Even if you're completely discounting what I said before about an alien artifact being interesting, if this thing's a machine, let's find out if it's sentient, because we, you know, certainly seem to believe that sentient machines are possible. We have enough of our own fiction based around that. But I think that you're rewording the question there. The question they're posed with is not, is this an alien or is it something else? Is, 
is it an alien or not? Okay. And they answered, or not. The rest of it is, and again, you're saying intelligent, curious individuals. These are probably bureaucrats who are given the question, is this an alien or not? They say, or not. They see their job as done. Well, I mean, it, this this was strongly implied by Jersey. I mean, it was it, it mentioned in the book. They're discussing this. Why right, do I, I already agree with you. Why does the compact have a commission to investigate aliens when we've never found one? And however long the uh, the I mean, the, it, it seems as this is the first evidence that anybody's ever had that anybody existed so you're right pokey i think it'd be over that on that like white on rice but you know this this uh committee is you know an economic artifact and their job is to that because there's there's off-world investment in novi plus the expense of you know porting everybody off novi it seems like space you know you wouldn't have some goods and all that if if space was a cheap thing. So, you know, the if the Commonwealth decides that, yeah, there's a, this is an alien planet and we don't want to interfere, they have this whole sense of moving the entire population, finding someplace else for them to go, possibly fighting a war with them because they don't want to leave. You know, it's, it's in the interest of the Commonwealth for this committee to decide, no, this is not a sentient alien. Uh, very strongly interests of the Commonwealth. In, in other words, this committee was set up said, you know, you, you, you guys find any aliens, there's going to be hell pay. One of the things that just popped in my head that I didn't even think about is what if they already know? What if the compact knows that there are these types of things out there and they're like, okay, just put on a show, make the people think that we don't know and move on because we've already seen this. We already know what it is. It's it's not worth anybody's time. Yeah, I'm I'm just wondering if all these and uh, com- or compact investigators all all dressed in black with blue rubber gloves, hands of blue. Nicely done. Take a drink. <laughs> Thank you guys for getting that. Not many people would get that. No, but all of us couldn't help it. Could we we couldn't miss it. So, just in case the the author ever hears this, uh, I will say that. The 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 reason I got so frustrated with all the inconsistencies in this is because underneath it all, it's a good story, and I like I said, it was a real page turner, and I wanted to keep hearing the story and to to hear um, you know good writing, uh, you know, kind of, kind of be intertwined with with things that I find frustrating. Make it doubly frustrating for me. Maybe that's just me. And I, I kind of hope it's just me. But well, not really. I don't know. It, it, it. Do you guys? You know what I'm saying? Like I've heard audio books and I've read books that were just garbage, and it didn't bother me that you know, there were holes in the plot or plot bullets or inconsistencies or, or unrealities because the books are just garbage and I just didn't care. I wasn't invested in them at all. But despite all these things, I was invested in this story. And, and, uh, 
you know, I, I think that if they were fixed, this could be a phenomenal story. Like if if there were a rewrite, you know, a revision to it, I think it could be a phenomenal story. Those things, you know, kept sticking in my head. Um, the things that I've mentioned mostly, uh, maybe there was one or two more. Uh, I'll tell you one still is the title, Matcher Rules. There was nothing in this book about rules. Why not just call it The Matcher? You know, I kept I kept waiting to find out what, what the rules are. There aren't any. We nitpick because we care. I disagree completely on that when she describes the whole process. You know, it's it's uh, uh, putting this jigsaw piece in with this other jigsaw piece and making a stronger thing. It's all about rules. I mean, she's not allowed to do, you know, uh, she keeps saying the thing, you know, uh, I could enforce people into an affinity, but I'm not allowed to do that. Yeah, but the consent was the only rule that ever got mentioned. As far as what affinities had to be and didn't have to be, there were no rules about that. She she specifically said she sees it as links of a chain, and some links are stronger than others. So she tried to choose the most efficient ones. There were almost no rules as far as what the, the links were. Um, early on in the story, I thought that the original Solo died as a result of him trying to make uh, affinities that that were not what the matcher was trying to make. But by the end of the story, I didn't believe that at all because she said there were so many uh, suboptimal and inefficient affinities that were made by her predecessors. So, you know, I completely changed my mind on that. I don't, I don't, I don't see that as a rule at all. The only rule there was, do I have your permission to put you in an affinity or take you out of one? Now, I kind of, yeah, I hadn't brought that up. You know, the lack of when she did the matching, there were no duos in the, you know, and, and this is one thing that the duo affinity was pushed towards a sort of association with the retros. Uh, you know, they... You know, when she did the matching that the uh, triads came about, the so three people came out about even, which they would have expected, and then the quads and the quints, you know, came out a lot bigger. And her making her making the uh, statement that, well, you know, it seems like the more people, the stronger the affinity. And, it, you know, I, I kind of thought that was may, maybe the previous... Um, solos had had, you know, sort sort of, um, you know, old world attachment. Like it, it seems like every other planet, you know, that mon- monogamy is the uh, is the rule. So that per- perhaps previous solos, all being older people, were more tied to tradition, where Stella was, you know, m- more willing to go with what the matcher said. Yeah, maybe. I I don't know. All right, we're we're going into, you know, who knows what it's going to wind up being after editing, but we're over 2 hours at this point and I don't think we're going to come to any conclusions or solve anything about this book. Uh, do you guys have any final thoughts you want to you want to close on and we can pick our next book? It's well it's well worth your time to sit, listen and enjoy. And I'm wondering if the author is not, you know, a child of the 60s, 70s con culture, you know, and making a statement that, uh, 
you know, one-on-one relationships, monogamy is is not the best thing that a big group, uh, you know, it takes a village to to uh, raise a child is a is a better way to go. That's a fairly astute point, fifty. Taj, the same thing had occurred to me, and I it harkened me back to Ender's Game and several other novels by Orson Scott Card, who once you know his social and political beliefs, it's impossible not to read them in his books. Fine, you're astute too, X1101. Now can we hear from Taj? Yes, please. I refuse to be astute just on principle. At a boy. Now it's it's if it sounds at all interesting, if you're intrigued at all by the by anything we've said, it's it's worth a listen. Just go into it knowing what it is and you know, I, I enjoyed it. I mean if I had nothing else to listen to and it was there, I would listen to it again. So, I mean, it's it's good. Just keep your expectations in check. And I say wait for the rewrite. Yeah, I, I have a trouble uh, with the rewrite, uh, Pokey, because every time somebody rewrites thing on patio books, it no longer becomes freely accessible. I See, I don't have a problem with that, though. I, I don't mind at all when people use audio books as the uh, the gateway drug and then and then charge for their later books i think it, it seems to be a business model that works for some people and if it gets more more art out there and gets these people paid that's great so who's got a book for next time if no one else does then one was recommended to me but if anybody else has one then it it can certainly wait well, i've got one i've had for a while but again it can wait it's not going anywhere I guess we could say them both and then flip a coin or something then, unless either of the other guys uh, want to chime in with something. I've got nothing. All right, Taj. I'll, why don't you uh, do like a pick a random number between one and two, and uh, <laughs> we'll do it the nerdy way. I'll be two and X101. No, X1101 can be one because he's an odd number anyway. I'm so- an odd something. So when you say one and two, do you mean zero and one or like literally one and two? I mean zero and one. I don't know what Pokey means. Oh, man, you just exposed my my false nerd cred to everybody. We bring that stuff in the light of day. That's fair enough. All right. So pick a random number and then tell us which one of us is is going to do the book. I'm picking the random number of one because it is both one and two. <laughs> Wow, like point nine repeating. It's both one and less than one. All right, go ahead, X1101. It's your turn. All right. I have got a book called Blood Witness by David Hitch. Dave Hitch, I'm sorry. Posting the link now. And where is that available from? Patio Books. Excellent. Right around Halloween, I had a vampire kick, and this was part of it. Oh, cool. All right. The... 10-second elevator pitches, vampires and Mormons. How could it get any more amusing than that? I like a good vampire story, but I like a good anything story, so that's cool. Seems like we're going to have to offend people, but I'm not sure Mormons listen to podcasts, so now I've been offensive. Oh, if if any of the things that we've done could offend people, this book will offend someone if they're offendable, probably. This, this isn't... This is not a child-safe book. This is not a work-safe book. This is not a easily offendable, offended people-safe book. But it's fun. Description mentions Jehovah's Witness as well, so 
I'm sure Jehovah Witnesses are never going to listen to this podcast. Oh, I don't know. I work with a Jehovah's Witness who I suspect may listen to Hacker Public Radio. Okay, I stand corrected then, and and I'm admonished that I've insulted all the Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm sure certain they'll all show up on my doorstep to uh, ex- express their displeasure. Nothing and is going to change that. Well, and I apologize that I think I've conflated Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. So is this a uh, straight horror, or is it comedy, or drama, or what are we what are we getting into? Yes. All right. Well, then we'll see everybody next month. All righty. Good night, everybody. Thanks for listening. Um, please feel free to join us on, on any recording. We do the second Tuesday of every month, what uh, many people refer to as Patch Tuesday. Though I don't think anybody in this room probably patched any uh, Windows computers today, so would made it a convenient opening in my schedule anyway. We're doing this. We moved the time. It's now at 8.30 p.m. Eastern U.S. time. I, I can't think offhand right now what that might be in uh, GMT, but I should probably work on that for the next episode. And that'll be Tuesday, March 10th. And I got to say, Pokey, that works out better for me because I usually work dark every night. So, you know, I, I always have to take off early to, to get on the book club. Yeah, there's a couple other people that I heard that from, too. And it makes me kind of wish I had I had uh, suggested or, or taken their suggestions of moving it maybe sooner so we weren't excluding some some people or as many people. I'm, I don't know, but we seem to go along. <laughs> That's the only reason. I know this is going to be rough on me. I'm going to be dead on my feet in the morning, but I'll make a good strong pot of coffee and I'll be fine. Oh, tomorrow's my second Saturday. I'll be okay. Well, for future note, if I was to pick one there, um, you know, you have, you have this fan fiction on, oh, I had to bring it back to Star Trek. Yes, yeah, Star Trek. And then there was a series I discovered that was audio only. You know, would that be up as a book? In other words, would anybody object if I propose that sometime in the future? No, I don't. I wouldn't. Would you guys? Nope. I'd be cool with it. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we sh- they strictly have to be audio novels. I mean, you know, an audio drama is fine. And a lot, some of the books we've done have kind of straddled that gap, anyway. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I mean, I like that there are you know, definitions for each different kind of thing, just because it makes it easier to describe it. And I know that, like, Lost in Bronx is is kind of a stickler for calling them what they are, but he's a, he's a heck of a lot more deeply involved in the creation of them than I am as well. Uh, so I do like that there's words to describe them, but I don't think that by, by calling it the audio book club that I don't think that anybody involved in the naming of this particular series meant to pigeonhole us into one particular kind of of um, audio fiction or audio listen. I don't even think it has to be fiction. That's probably not even the right word either. But yeah, what? Why not? Well, and a lot of times it's as I was saying, it's not necessarily a binary thing. You know, it's you can be something in between an audio book and an audio drama. I mean, at some point you have to pick one, maybe, but. There are definitely things that fall in between those categories. And on kind of that topic, Pokey, have you ever heard any updates from this thing of ours? I mean, I know I know they killed you off in the last episode that I heard, so 
I guess you're no longer on the mailing list. Um, no, I hadn't heard anything else about it, and I didn't think they'd even killed me off yet. I, I, I didn't think that episode had aired. It was recorded, but I don't think it aired. But either way, yeah, I, I think it's done. I mean, it, and I'm not surprised either. The uh, the, the work that, um, that Scott was putting into that series was uh, tremendous. What it would have cost him a tremendous amount of time, and to not get any money out of it, or or you know, be able to use it. I'm sure he was using it as a resume. I hope I hope he was, um, just because he did fantastic work on that, and I'm, I'm was and continue to be thrilled to be a part of it. And it would be really nice if it if it you know were, were wrapped up and came to an end. But I can understand if if he just doesn't have the time to do it. That's perfectly understandable. But uh, but no, I. I I don't know whether or not he has plans to pick it back up or, or whether he's actually put it down. So, sorry, no. Good night, folks. I'm going to bed. Have a nice night. See you next month. Me too. Have a great month, guys. Later, guys. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website, or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.